Welcome to our podcast series, Pazina Perspectives. I'm Valerie Arnold, co-head of North American Distribution at Pazina Investment Management. We are a value manager known for our commitment and dedication to disciplined value investing throughout an investment cycle. Today, we are here to discuss U.S. and European banks. I want to note that this podcast goes along with a written piece that is on our website, pazina.com. Let me introduce you to our guests. I'm here with John Flynn. He's been at Pazina Investment Management for 15 years, and he is a portfolio manager on our U.S. small cap, U.S. mid cap, and U.S. large cap strategies. And I'm here with Eric Hageman, one of our banking analysts, who covers the larger cap capital market banks, and he's been at Pazina Investment Management for almost nine years. Today, we're here to address financials, where we have a very large exposure across our portfolios, both in the U.S. and international markets, and a majority of that exposure is in commercial and investment banks. Let me get started with John. John, can you tell us why um, the research team decided to take on this project to write a thought piece on banks at this time? Sure, uh, Valerie, thanks for having us today. Uh, you know, it's interesting, this isn't, this, we didn't set out to write a, a thought piece. Um, we actually came about uh, with this as part of our organic research. And I think it, it's helpful to kind of take a step back, all the way back to the beginning of the year, which feels like many years ago after, after what we've been through, but in kind of where we were with financials and, and where our thinking was. At the time, um, like today, we had big positions in, in, in financials and particularly in the large uh, banks. Um, and our thesis around that was the banks were extraordinarily well capitalized. The liquidity profile of the bank was quite strong. And from a credit standpoint, we hadn't really seen any big excesses in the marketplace in terms of credit. Um, and we found the valuations at that point quite compelling. Um, and so had them as, as you know, big positions in the portfolio. Fast forward through the months of February and then March, as it became clear that we were dealing with something completely unprecedented in terms of the, uh, the coronavirus and shutting down the global economy for three months plus, and the impacts that would have not just on the financials, but across the entire economic spectrum. And so, you know, as a research team, we really spent March and, and beginning of April really digging into all of our holdings saying, what does bad look like for these holdings? What's the liquidity profile of these holdings? Can they make it to the other side if, we, if the economy is shut down for some prolonged period of time? And as we went through that exercise, our, our bank team started going through that exercise for the banks in particular saying, okay, well, what exactly are the credit implications for something like this? And how should we think about this? A lot of people uh, in the marketplace were saying, well, well, let's go back and look at the global financial crisis um, and, and we say, well, that, that's one way of looking at it, but, but let's take a much broader approach and kind of go in and look historically over the past 130 years, going all the way back to the Great Depression, what credit cycles look like and, and, and what that can be like. And maybe before we jump into kind of some of the findings and, and, and how that impacts the portfolio, maybe I'll bring Eric in here and kind of, Eric, can you just give us a, a quick intro to how we should be thinking about banks kind of in the context of, of the work we did here and then sort of lead into the work that you and the team did and how that kind of came about. Sure. And thanks, Valerie, for having us today. So as you said, John, we'll get into the findings in a bit, but I'll spare everyone the suspense and at least summarize our bottom line. 
Um, what we found is that across the worst episodes of developed market loan losses over the past 130 years, this is not quote unquote typical recessions, but periods of existential stress for banks. We found that loan losses kind of plateau at levels that today's banking industry would find systemically manageable. So that's point number one. Point number two is that the absence of excess investment in the run-up to the COVID environment, um, plus the existence of unprecedented government support, turn out to be pretty salient differences between this crisis and the earlier ones that we studied. Um, and you know, I think that all of this will be easier to talk about if we take a quick detour into how banks make money and how we at Pazina value banks. Um, and so to begin with, the best way to think about how banks make money is to start with the balance sheet. So on the left-hand side, you've got assets, which are primarily loans and securities, and these generate interest income. On the, on the right-hand side are liabilities, primarily deposits and other sources of funding which carry interest expense. And the net of those is net interest income. Now there's some operating expense associated with making loans and, and gathering deposits. And then in addition, most banks have at least one fee-based business, things like wealth and asset management or payment processing businesses, uh, which are less balance sheet intensive. Then if you put all these together, you have what's called pre-provision operating profit or PPOP, uh, which is a fancy way of saying profit before bad loans. PPOP is also what I plan to have my future grandchildren call me. <laughs> you know, we banking analysts don't have a lot of jokes, but the ones we do have are very, very funny. Um, and so that's all before credit costs. But, you know, you do have loans go bad. And uh, when loans go bad, they get written off through the income statement. And that eats into uh, the, uh, the bank's capital. So you know, that's the credit expense, which is really what people are most worried about in, in the current environment. And then lastly, you know, the key measure of banking profitability is the return on equity, uh, which is profit divided by shareholders' equity. And that segues into an important aspect of the banking profitability model, which is leverage. Um, leverage just means that a bank's assets are multiples of its equity. So in round numbers, U.S. commercial banks are levered 10 to 1. They have $10 of assets for every dollar of equity. And the average bank earns about $1.20 for every $100 of assets on the balance sheet. Uh, but that return, that return on assets gets amplified by 10 times uh, by the leverage, so that the return on equity, instead of being 1.2%, is around 12%. Thanks, Eric. PPOP. I'm going to have to use that one. But I have one more question for you. How does Pazina analyze banks? What valuation metrics do we focus on? So as our listeners may know, here at Pazina, we use a common yardstick for valuing all companies, um, and that's price to normalized earnings. Of course, we do look at traditional measures like price to book value, which are very commonly used and very informative in the financial space. but we really rely primarily on price to normalized earnings. And our estimate of normal earnings for a bank is generally informed by an assessment of the quality of the business 
an assessment of the quality of the balance sheet. And we support our view of the business earnings with um, a review of the demonstrated earnings history of the company. Um, and so to go through a few of these things that we would be looking at, you know, the core banking business is gathering deposits and making loans. And generally the ability to loan money is a commodity business. There's low barriers to entry because anyone with a checkbook can write a loan and it's not particularly hard to find someone who wants to borrow money. Um, but that said, you know, a bank might have expertise in a particular area. You might have a regional bank in an oil producing region that happens to be really good at underwriting loans to energy companies, or you might have a credit card company that has a, you know, a very rich data set and um, a clever set of alg algorithms for assessing the credit worthiness of certain kinds of uh, credit card borrowers. Another thing that can distinguish banks on the core banking side is the quality of their deposit franchise. You know, some banks can simply attract deposits at a lower cost than peers. Um, and if you think about the, the major banks like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, JP Morgan, you know, these guys, they all enjoy the benefit of paying less for a dollar of deposits than the average bank. And it's because the convenience factor of putting your money with one of them, with the breadth of the services that they offer, um, is sufficient to uh, allow them to beat smaller competitors in the fight for deposits. And then lastly, you know, some banks have very strong positions in fee-based businesses that enjoy either scale advantages or customer captivity uh, or some other source of franchise value. So we spend a lot of our time understanding a bank's relative strengths and then how those get reflected in the earnings history of the bank. Um, we also take a granular approach to estimating a normal rate of loan losses based on the types of loans and the riskiness of loans that the bank is making. And that's particularly relevant as we look at the banks today. And then lastly, some banks are uh, more overcapitalized than others, meaning that they carry a lot of capital on their balance sheet that they could very well return to shareholders, and many of them do. Um, and if uh, a bank is carrying a lot of excess capital that we're very likely to get back as shareholders, then we reflect that in what we're willing to pay for for that stock. Thanks, Jerry. That's an interesting point there on the, on the excess capital. And I think it's one of the things, you know, I, I kind of started off talking about our view at the beginning of the year. Uh, the banks were very well capitalized and, and, and actually there was meaningfully more capital in the banking system today than there was back in 2008. And, and I thought it might be helpful just to dimension that a little bit for people to kind of understand, you know, how how much can the banks lose on their loans and still you know exist through it, uh, and then kind of what are the components? Um, and when you break it down, what you find is that there's really three sources uh, that banks have to absorb losses in their credit books. Um, the first is going to be this capital position, right? So banks, by whatever regulatory body they're governed by around the world, have minimum capital levels that they need to maintain. That that equity base that that Eric was talking about earlier. In the U.S., that's broadly around a 7% threshold. And when you look at the, the banking system today, uh, you're over 13% over uh, capital ratios. So that there's a big excess cushion there. And when you look at that as a percent of loans today, that excess capital alone can, can absorb just shy of 8% in terms of total losses. 
in addition, banks take a, a loan loss provision on their books, uh, on their balance sheet. This is kind of for future losses. That's a little over 1% today. So when you add the excess capital and the loan loss provision on the balance sheets today, you're looking at 9% in terms of, of capital. And that's just a static picture. If you then go and say, okay, well, these losses come in over time, um, right? If you go back to the Great Depression, which Eric will talk about in a bit, but those losses came in over a five-year period. Um, and so the banks do have earnings during this period. And in the US, it's a little over 3% of loans that come in through earnings on an annualized basis. So if you assume that the losses come in over three years, plus the capital base, excess capital base, you get to 19% of loans is kind of the loss absorption capabilities of the banking system over kind of a three-year period. And that's a big number. And, and to, to kind of give some context around, you know, how big a number that is, I think this is where we kind of get to the meat of the work that we did over the past 130 years. Maybe Eric, you want to take it and talk about the, the, you know, the key insights we had when we went back and looked at history and, and, and how that 19% comes into context. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it really tells a very compelling story. It was very interesting to go back and see what the data actually showed, because in some cases it challenged uh, what our, in, our intuition may have been or our you know, preconceived notions about those, uh, those events may have been. So we were able to get data sets on aggregated loan losses for banks across a whole bunch of different times and places. And those were primarily uh, the Great Depression, uh, the um, savings and loan crisis of the late 80s, which was really more of a banking crisis than a, you know, a GDP crisis per se. Uh, we looked at Japan's lost decade and we looked at the experience of the GFC, uh, both in the US and Europe and with a particular focus as well on the Baltic states that were uh, significantly affected from a GDP perspective. And we found two things, um, just at a high level. The first is that cumulative losses don't get much worse than 10%. And you know, we can talk about how to relate that to the uh, capital resources that the banks have and their ability to absorb losses. Finding that cumulative losses don't get much worse than 10% allowed us to define for ourselves what a worst case scenario looks like at the system level. The second point, is that these earlier crises were all preceded by run-ups in private debt to GDP, um, which doesn't apply to the current environment. And in fact, there's a lot of good reason to believe that the setup for credit is much better today than in the earlier crises. Yeah, so Eric, can I, can I jump in for a second? You know, you, you mentioned kind of that the, the losses kind of plateau in that 10% range. How do you think about that um, in terms of, you know, is there any logic to that number or what did you guys find? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, just to briefly in review, in the Great Depression, they were 11%. In Japan, they were 12%. In the GFC, 7%. So you see that the center of gravity of the numbers is around 10. Um, and why is it 10? I, I don't think there's anything magical about 10. But it makes a lot of sense that the losses would plateau at some, at some point. Now, the first thing that I really want to clarify is that, you know, you got to understand that the loan losses are net of recoveries. So 
what we're talking about is what the bank lost after they collected whatever collateral they could. And recoveries vary a lot, but call it 50 to 70% of the amount of the loan. So for a bank to write off 10% of its loan book really means that 20 to 30% of the loans have to have gone bad. And then, you know, here's the intuition for why the bad loans would plateau. When you think about, you know, some loans are gonna go bad kind of the second that there's any hiccup to GDP. You know, these are the least credit worthy borrowers. And then you have other loans that are gonna be fine almost no matter what. Most loans are gonna be somewhere in between those two things. And so by the time you get to a 20 or 30% decline in GDP, which is, you know, in the depression, GDP was down 36% over five years and loan losses cumulatively were 11%. You know, when you get to that kind of decline, the loans that haven't gone bad already are likely to be households and firms and sectors that were simply less affected by the decline. So in the current environment, think about the debt carried by grocery stores. There's no reason to believe, almost no matter how long the situation persists, that loans uh, carried by grocery stores are gonna go bad. Uh, and that's just a reflection of the nature of of where we are. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the second thing that we learned, uh, which related to uh, the one thing that these historical crises all had in common is that they were preceded by investment booms. They were preceded by, you know, big run-ups in private debt as a percentage of GDP. And those kinds of booms are really a prelude to destruction of capital because at the end of a cycle, the marginal dollar is being invested in you know, bridges to nowhere that are gonna be really destined for write-off. And you know, what we found in those earlier peaks is that the more the peak is built on irrational exuberance, the longer it takes for GDP to get back to, to where it peaked. You know, by comparison, in the last 10 years, private debt to GDP in the US has declined. Um, private debt to GDP in the, U in the Euro area is flat. So, you know, there's been no asset bubble driving a peak in GDP, and, and that's why we're, we're in recession. Um, you could really argue that if a business was viable, say, in January, then it probably had an, a legitimate economic reason for being, you know, if it can simply muster the liquidity to survive the virus. And by the way, that seems to be the attitude of policymakers who are really doing everything that they can to provide liquidity to households and, and firms alike. If you were the banking analyst during the GFC, you know, this, this has got to feel very different than the last crisis vis-a-vis -vis how the banks are interacting with regulators. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Eric, because if you go you know, back to the, the, the GFC, the, the banks were seen as, as, as part of the problem, right? They were the ones extending excess credit, making loans to people who, who they shouldn't be making loans to, um, you know, all these securitizations and, and, and risk hidden on their balance sheets. And so as we had the, the regulatory response, um, you know, there were forced equity raises at very uh, dilutive prices, um, you know, and they were very much the, the enemy of the regulators and, and, and really the, the, the evil actors in, in, in the crisis. Uh, today, 
what we have is a, a national health emergency and a response that the banks have played no part in. Um, and as a result, uh, actually the banks are part of the solution. When you look at the stimulus programs and the, and the liquidity programs that central banks and governments around the world are putting out there, they're relying on the, the, the banks to, to implement these. Um, you know, you have the payroll protection plan, right? That was in partnership in the U.S. with the SBA, the Small Business Association, but that had to be administered by the banks themselves. And, and, and getting that money into small business owners' hands was very much, you know, they, the government needed the banks for that. And so I think we're seeing a very different uh, response. Obviously, um, that's not to be taken for granted. I think the banks are very much focused when we talk on them on maintaining this positive relationship and, and maintaining the, the correct alignment uh, with governments and regulators. But, but just the sheer magnitude of what we've seen from the governments, uh, I think it is a very different uh, environment than we saw back a decade ago. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, when you talk about the banks having been viewed as evil actors, I think it goes to uh, a broader point, which is that the nature of this crisis is such that there's really less of a risk of moral hazard than in earlier crises that, crises that were caused, you know, in whole or in part by risk taking. And that makes it so much politically easier to mobilize a response when you think about how quickly the things you mentioned, like the payroll protection plan um, or the CARES Act, came together compared to the stimulus that was passed uh, in, the, in the financial crisis in the US. You know, the government, despite all of the partisanship and so on, uh, was actually able to act pretty quickly. And I think that the lack of moral hazard, because this relates to um, a virus and not human behavior, uh, was a big part of it. And, you know, that, that's something that's really worth emphasizing is the fiscal and monetary response to the crisis. One of the things we talk about in the paper is that the Fed has bought more assets within two months of this recession than in the first five years of the GFC. So they had a playbook that was revved up, ready to go, to be deployed into exactly this kind of scenario. You know, the Fed has made available a, a wide range of asset purchasing programs supporting anything from the commercial paper market to even parts of the leveraged loan market. And the ECB in Europe has been similarly aggressive in providing liquidity. And then on the fiscal side, you know, the discretionary response of developed markets has added up to around nine or 10% of, of GDP. And then on top of that, you have certain automatic stabilizers that kick in. Those are larger in, in countries that have big governments to begin with, like France, um, the automatic stabilizers are another 4%. So there's a lot of cushioning that's being provided uh, by the government. Yeah, one of, one of the things that, that I thought was really striking is, is when we saw the household saving rates come out uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I know that, that you guys as a team have been really digging into that data. Um, curious, can you walk us through some of the things you've seen in that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because the savings data was one of the more bullish things that we've seen uh, from the perspective of credit in general and consumer credit in particular. 
And it really gives you an idea of the sort of impact that these fiscal measures are having. Um, in the US context, in the month of April, wages and salaries were down 8% because unemployment went up. But total income, uh, which includes government transfers, was actually up 11%. You know, that's how much fiscal stimulus has been thrown at households. Um, and in fact, we analyzed the consumption and income profile of the people losing their jobs. And we found that on average, they earn less and they consume less than the average worker. Um, and that actually state and federal unemployment benefits combined, on average exceed what those folks were earning. So, you know, the current recession reflects a reduction in consumption that's not being driven by falling wages, but by an increase in consumer savings. You know, people are saving money because they're afraid to consume or in you know, many cases prohibited from consuming. And the amount that they're saving is just staggering. You know, the personal savings rate in the US normally ranges from five to 10% of disposable income. So you know, in February it was 8%, in March it was 13%, and then in April it hit 33%. The, the highest that that number had ever gotten in the past 60 years, was 17% in May 1975. And so what we're seeing, you know, with people saving so much is that credit card balances are down. Credit card balances are down 7% year over year in June. Pre-COVID, they were up about 5% uh, year over year, which is more normal. Um, you know, now without question, the consumption only comes back when people are liberated to consume again. But there's at least the possibility of a swifter rebound than in a GDP decline that was precipitated by excessive investment. And because of that deleveraging that we're seeing reflected in the savings rate, the setup for consumer credit is actually quite good. And that further reinforces our idea that the 10% system-wide loss rates that we saw in those earlier crises really is a good proxy for what a worst case outcome looks like. And we've found that the systems, both in the US and Europe as a whole, have adequate resources to absorb that without eating into, um, without eating into their regulatory capital requirements. That's, that's pretty remarkable. And I think one of the things, as we look at this data and we're talking about loss experiences and the different environments we're in, I want to emphasize it that we're not taking a view that the losses are going to be nothing here. Um, we, we certainly expect there to be bank losses and, and potentially significant bank losses on, on the credit side. However, I think the point is that the system is very well equipped and there's a lot of tools in place to make this manageable. Um, and, and we think that the, the banks are, are, are well positioned or as well positioned as you can be going into a credit event. And, and I think maybe it'd be helpful, you know, we've been talking a lot high level, um, but just on the portfolio level and kind of what this, what this means in the portfolio and kind of what we see in, in terms of the opportunity set broadly in the portfolio today is that it's the economically sensitive and cyclical names that are the cheapest. Um, and in particular, there are two areas that stand out. Um, that would be uh, sort of financials broadly and energy. And, and 
maybe I'll use this as an opportunity to plug another piece we put out uh, a couple of weeks ago on the oil services names and, and the opportunity there. But but the valuations in both energy and, and financials are noticeably cheaper. And you know, so we're buying banks like in the six to eight times normal earnings uh, range versus something you know, the midpoint of the universe is, is in around 17 times, just to give you some perspective. We're buying a name like Citigroup, right? Global banking franchise at 0.7 times tangible book value. Uh, Citi did somewhere around seven and a half dollars of earnings last year. Maybe the stock is in the mid fifties now. Um, so, you know, if you just think of that as just, that's just last year's earnings power, let alone you know, future earnings power. And, and so part of the reason we wanted to put this piece out there and share some of the observations over this longer term survey is it's augmenting the fundamental bottom up work we do uh, on all the banks. So we're looking at, you know, granular loan portfolios, as Eric mentioned earlier, what are the core franchises? So for a capital one, to the, the, the underwriting for credit cards, that's capital one. City's got the global franchise, uh, you know, Wells Fargo, tremendous uh, in Bank of America, tremendous, uh, deposit franchises in the U.S. and and that's JP Morgan kind of JP Morgan good absolutely everything. Oh, JP Morgan's good absolutely everything. Um, and so, I think it's important that people understand that you know while we're looking down in, in this analysis, kind of from thirty thousand feet, we're building the portfolios kind of from from the ground up and from the the fundamentals of the business and and because there are gonna be banks that take outsized losses in this environment. And you have to be diligent to that. And so that's where we come at this from and the work that we've been doing over the past couple months. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned City as a great opportunity and I think that's a terrific example. If I put City in the context of the loss absorption framework that you described earlier, of excess capital, loan loss reserve, and pre-provision earnings. City has resources to be able to write off 22% of their loan book over the next three years before they hit regulatory capital minimums. That's a very, very big number. That's remarkable. When you think about the main source of credit risk within City, it's their cards business. Now, credit cards are among the more uh, you know, risky businesses, uh, it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect that 10 or 20% of that book could be written off due to the current crisis. That's only 25% of their loan book. Overall, we think that a worst case scenario for City's total book is more like an 8% loss rate. And so they will experience pain in the current crisis, but nothing like what the stock is currently discounting at a 30% discount to tangible book value and eight times normal earnings. Again, as you said, while the overall market is, you know, at the median point, trading at 17 times normal. Can you also give us an example of a non-US bank that we find particularly attractive? Sure, Valerie. Well, globally, I think that UBS is a really great example of, you know, a baby that has been thrown out with the bathwater. Uh, UBS is primarily a wealth manager and investment bank, so they're not really a lending business per se. They do make some loans. They make loans to their Swiss corporate clients. They also make some loans to their wealth management clients, and these are either 
mortgages or loans uh, secured by investment assets, and that's called Lombard lending. Um, and these are you know, loans to high net worth individuals. They all have loan to value ratios on the order of 50%, which means that you know, the value of the collateral could decline by 50%, and if the loan went bad, um, UBS could still basically get their money back. Um, UBS did lose a lot of money in mortgage-backed securities in the global financial crisis, but they barely had any loan losses. And we would expect a similar experience in the current environment just by nature of the business that they're in. And yet, despite that, UBS is trading at a 30% discount to book value and only five times normal earnings. So, you know, both UBS and Citi are examples of great opportunities in the current environment. Yeah, Eric, there's, there's one thing that comes up a lot, and, and you know, we've been talking today about credit and, and capital at the banks, but interest rates come up. You know, we're seeing in parts of the world negative interest rates, declining interest rates. Um, you know, and I think people ask about how that affects the bank model over time. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of start, but I'd love for you to chime in because I think it's an important point. You know, banks primarily are, are spread business over time. So it's more the direction of rates that matter than the absolute level of rates. Now, banks are going to earn less in a zero rate environment than they would in a higher rate environment, all else being equal. But, you know, we've been operating in a low rate environment for the better part of a decade. So if rates stay low for a while, um, certainly there'd be an impact on the net interest income for the banks as an earnings event. Um, but in terms of the longer term earnings power, uh, we think that remains intact. I don't know, Eric, if you want to jump in there. Sure. I mean, I agree with what you just said. I'm going to make a very radical statement. If a business provides something of real value to customers, they usually figure out a way to be paid for it. And when you think about an account at Wells Fargo, that's a thing of demonstrable value. Even if depositors aren't explicitly paying for it, when you think about it, Wells Fargo is paying depositors on average about 130 basis points less than the risk-free rate. That, that's been the 20-year history. So the opportunity cost of putting your money at Wells as a depositor is about 1, 1.3% per year. Now, if rates are zero, people are still gonna need those services. The value that those services provides to people is independent of the level of rates. Banks and geographies that have dealt with negative rates for a long time, like the Nordic countries or Switzerland, are increasingly successful in charging negative rates to depositors. You know, or if you don't like calling it a negative interest rate, just you know, rebrand it as a fee, call it an annual fee. But the concept that you should pay for banking services isn't all that radical. The, the, the worst thing for banks um, would be if we oscillate between optimism and pessimism about rates. Because what that does is it paralyzes managements from changing how they do business because they don't really know what the steady state environment is going to be for them. But if the industry becomes resigned to zero forever, I think you will start to see a lot more discussion around redefining the mechanics of how banks make money. Thanks, Eric. Um, I have one last question. 
what happens to your thesis if there's a second wave or if the COVID slowdown is long and protracted? Yeah, we're not contemplating that, you know, we'd love a V-shaped recovery as would everyone, um, but we're certainly not contemplating a V-shaped recovery in any of our analysis. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's important to, to keep in the framework is that, you know, when we look at that capital absorption ability uh, in the multiple years of earnings coming through, that's how these things play out. Losses come in over time. And so there certainly will be fits and stop, stops along the way and new data points as we evolve. But, but I, don't, I, I don't think that, you know, whether it's a second wave or, or a slightly more prolonged uh, outcome really changes the, the, the point we're making that these banks have the wherewithal to make it to the other side. Now, obviously, if you told me the economy was going to be shut for the next two years and nobody left their houses, um, you know, that's a very different environment and it's an environment where you probably don't want to own equities at all, uh, quite frankly. Um, but, but in an environment where you do see some recovery over time from where we've been from a complete global shutdown, um, we think the banks are well positioned. John and Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you everyone for listening in. Remember to check out the written piece that we put on our website, pizina.com, for further information. You can also uh, feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions uh, or comments. We would love your feedback.